Sweater, sunshine's out again. Glad to have you here with us to worship. I have just a couple of announcements before we begin today. Uh, first, for you guys, uh, coming up on Saturday, November the 11th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at our Kesslinger campus, we have our first men's ministry event of the season, and it's called On the Mark. Now, pay attention, because there's things going on there that you might want to participate in. It's going to feature activities like compound bow shooting, crossbow shooting, tomahawk throwing. So if you want to brush up on your medieval warrior skills, come and join us that Saturday morning. It's seriously going to be a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fellowship. A lunch will follow all the activities. I invite a friend to join you. Uh, there's early bird registration, I think, through uh, this week uh, where you get a discount. Uh, so show up uh, and join, join, join us for a fun day, Saturday, November, November the 11th. And on November 12th, Sunday, we're going to be baptizing folks at all our campuses. And like I said last week, if you would like to be baptized here at South Street in the service, uh, we are going to do a class next Sunday right after, the, after service here, right out in the fireplace area for anyone who wants to be baptized here. We have a, a couple of people already indicate interest. And uh, if you uh, have limited mobility and worry about trying to get up into that tank that we use, uh, we are actually going to find a different way to do it this time so that if that's an issue for you, we can find a way to, for you to celebrate baptism as well. So again, right here, South Street next week, if you're interested or want to learn more about it, uh, meet me in the lobby area right after the service, and we'll go through uh, what that means and how we'll do it in a special way. Hi, my name is Molly Gaston. I'm a junior at Chapel Street, and I'm 16 years old. This past June, I was given the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Ecuador with about 75 other students and leaders from the church. I'm Jacob Van Rossum. I am 17 and I'm a senior at Geneva High School. I felt called to go to Ecuador because it's a trip with just a bunch of different people and just a bunch of new experiences that I don't feel like it's something that I would be able to see and feel here in America. Mainly we were there to serve El Refugio, which is this amazing retreat center for missionaries. The El Refugio team is a mix of people. Some are from Chapel Street, some are from just different parts of the world, different parts of Ecuador and they speak different languages, like some of them speak fluent Spanish, some of them both English and Spanish, so it's really cool just to see like all these different people working together. So going to El Refugio, the impact for me, six months prior, I'd say, leading up to it, I'd pray every day uh, about prayer. And in specific, I wanted opportunities to be able to pray in front of people or pray with people, pray in front of larger groups, really. I didn't tell Tom Ward about this prayer of mine, but multiple times he called on me to pray in front of our whole group in Ecuador. One time it was even at the church service and we were ending service and Tom just called on me. He goes, Jacob, you want to pray us out? And I was like, whoa, that is, God, what? This is my prayer right here. I think around like the middle of our trip to Ecuador, we went to this woman's home called Casa Tau, and it was made up of women from ages 12 to early 20s who had children of their own or a child of their own. And this woman named Anna had taken them under her wing and really just showed them God's love through her, her guidance and her comfort. And just being in that house, it was, you could just feel the overwhelming amount of joy and I will never forget like the presence of God in that house. 
And I just remember one of the women who was 18 years old, she was able to share her testimony with us and it was very emotional. And I remember just the contrast of feeling both so heartbroken for what she had gone through, but also so joyful for how it led her to God. I think that moment really showed to me that God's joy is greater than anything we'll ever go through. Like you can always find joy even in those hard times. A lot of times when we think of serving, we think that we have to have this special talent or this special calling to serve. But Ecuador really showed me that there's so many different opportunities to serve no matter who you are. I remember specifically uh, the VBS that we did, which is like the vacation Bible school for the kids of the town. And there were so many, I think there were like 300 kids there. To see those kids who only spoke Spanish, maybe like a little bit of English, and us who mainly spoke only English, interacting without even having to speak the same language was the coolest moment ever because we really saw that God's love doesn't have a language. Okay, so my group and I in Ecuador, we did a challenge to where we'd find three things throughout the day. And in the moment, we'd pray. So if you were, if you saw something amazing, you'd thank God for that. So you just say, thank you, Lord, for these amazing mountains that you've placed in front of us right here. You'd pray for something that was affecting you. Or the third part was just find a time that you can just pray and just talk to God. And then after that, something I've worked on is listening, finding times to read your Bible and listen to what the Lord has to say for you. Two students like presented with the opportunity to go to a trip like Ecuador or Twin Cities even, I just want to urge you to take that opportunity because it is such an amazing chance to grow closer to God as you also grow closer to this community of people who follow God. And even if it's something that causes you to come step out of your comfort zone, I just recommend going on these trips and pushing yourself a little bit because you'll know so much more about God, but you'll also know so much more about yourself and about the people in your community. The mission trip in Ecuador was so significant for me because just looking back that I always think of is how God's love was so eminent throughout the whole entire trip. Being able to see how he looks so similar in different people was definitely the biggest takeaway from the trip. I hope you, like me, are uh, grateful to be part of a church family that invests so much in next generation, not just um, to give them opportunities for fun or adventure, but to invest in them as leaders, as you can see in those two young people who spoke to us today, and thankful for the generosity of so many and the generosity of so many of you that makes trips like the Ecuador trip possible. I don't know if you heard that, but 75 students went to Ecuador, and that's only a portion of the number of students we sent different places around the country and around the world to serve, and it's a great thing. So thank you for your generosity and helping students put their faith to work, which is what we, the, the, the letter of James is all about. Now, before I get started, I want to invite you, uh, let you know that there's a special prayer meeting happening tomorrow morning right here in this sanctuary at 7 a.m., 7, 8 a.m., to pray specifically for what's happening in Israel. So if that's been on your heart and mind, and you can, uh, join us here in the sanctuary tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., for a time of prayer. Well, my brother, Joe, who I talk about quite often, uh, who is a pastor in Ohio, likes to tell this story about himself. And I, I share it because I think something like this in one way or another happens to most of us. A few years ago, he was driving in his car, which at that time happened to be 
a seven or eight-year-old Honda Accord with like 150,000 miles on it. He came to a stoplight, and in the lane next to him, another guy pulled up in his car. About his age, he looked over, but the car was in really bad shape. It, you know, it had rust on it, had uh, visible dents in the door, duct tape holding the bumper on. And my brother said he found himself sort of unconsciously profiling that driver, thinking to himself, well, I must have not paid much attention in school, maybe a little bit lazy, maybe dropped out of school, couldn't get a good job, you know, too bad. And then he moved on. Light turned green, went to the next light. The next light he stopped, and a different car pulled up next to him. Happened to be a late model, brand new, convertible BMW. He glanced over, saw the guy sitting in it about his age, and he thought to himself, materialist. <laughs> that story still makes me smile after many years because if I'm honest, I can kind of see myself there because I'm quite capable, and maybe you are too, of making that kind of snap judgment almost without thinking, based entirely on external factors, may, which may or may not have anything to do with the actual character of the person. This is our third week in a series from James called Faith Works. And just by way of review, in case you've missed a week or two, uh, James, we believe, is the younger half-brother of Jesus himself, uh, who was transformed from skeptic into believer through an encounter with the risen Christ, uh, and who became the leader, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and is writing this letter some 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to Jewish background believers who've been scattered around the region uh, who are going through a time of trial and hardship. And he's concerned, it appears, that there's a growing disconnect between what they, these young believers believe about Christ and about the Christian life and how they're actually living their lives. He began his letter by encouraging his readers to consider it joy when they face trials of many kinds because perseverance, he said, produces maturity in our lives. And then last week, we saw that he urged them not just to be hearers of the word, that is the teachings of Jesus and the gospel, but to receive the word and to become doers of the word. In other words, to put their faith to work in tangible ways. And then James ends chapter 1 by saying that true religion, that is genuine faith, always produces changed behavior. And it's marked by things like controlling our speech, our tongues, by care for widows and orphans, the disadvantaged, and by keeping ourselves, he says, from being stained or polluted by the world. And then he begins now chapter 2 by addressing one of the ways that we can be stained by the world. And that has to do with how we perceive people, how we treat people, particularly in regard to wealth and status. So I'm going to read today from James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, and then we'll look at what the Lord is teaching us. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. We'll talk about that word in just a moment. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Pause there just for a moment. I want you to think about this. What would it take for James to think of his older half-brother as the Lord of glory. Most of you have siblings, I would think. What would it take for you to think your sibling is the Lord of all glory? Only, a, only a, an encounter with a risen, once dead, now living Lord could do that. 
Secondly, this word glory is a, is a powerful word throughout Scripture. It tends to refer to uh, weightiness or significance or splendor. And what James is saying here is that Jesus is the Lord of glory, and his glory renders all other glories that we may want to give people or things or activities utterly meaningless in comparison. And if we give glory or partiality, as he says, to a person, a human, we've kind of missed the point of who Jesus is. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. That word brothers also means sisters, brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who sh- has shown no mercy. That, by the way, that's straight from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James ends with this sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to look at three things today. First, the problem of partiality, then the principle of the royal law, and finally, the power of mercy. First, the problem of partiality. I've told this story before, but you may remember it. Um, When I was in, uh, from the time I was in about fourth grade until I graduated from high school, our family lived in a small community about 40 miles north of New York City. Kind of like Geneva is to Chicago, our little town was that way to New York City. Uh, One summer, and it happened to be in Westchester County, which is uh, even to this day one of the most affluent counties in America. Um, One summer uh, weekend, a family who had just started coming to our church invited our family to share uh, a boat ride with them on their boat, uh, which was anchored in uh, Long Island Sound. Uh, I, was not, I was away at camp at the time. Uh, they owned a 35-foot yacht, and they invited us to join them. So I was away at camp. I wasn't there. My brother tells the story. Uh, and so uh, he, was, he thought that was amazing. That's not the boat, but it looked like that. He'd never been on a boat like that before. thought it was amazing to have friends who could afford a boat like that. And at lunchtime, uh, the mom of the family brought out, not like what we would do on a trip to the beach. We would, like, have peanut butter jelly or hot dogs or something. She brought out a whole tray of fancy rolled up meat with toothpicks stuck in the meat. And to my brother, who had never seen that before, he thought that was like the pinnacle of opulent living. Like, how could life get any better than this? And as they finished lunch, another boat came floating by, a 155-foot yacht floated by. And the woman who owned the 35-foot yacht looked out and said, that's how the other half lives. And it suddenly dawned on my brother's 12-year-old mind that if that was the other half, our family didn't live in either half. (laughs) 
And I think most of us uh, have thoughts like that at times, uh, one time or another. That is, we, we know there's another half out there, and we'd like to be in it, or at least have friends in that other half. And it's possible that something like that was going on in this young and struggling church. James says, my brother, show no partiality. And that word uh, sometimes is translated favoritism, and it comes from a root word that means an acceptor of a face. That is, to turn your face towards some and not toward others. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, we might say a man wearing a $1,000 suit and wearing a Rolex watch, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay more attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a nice comfy pew. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you stand in the back, or you sit on the floor. Have you not made the distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we have to ask ourselves, what might be going on? What is James aware of that makes him want to talk about this issue of partiality? We don't really know for sure, but we can make some guesses. For example, we know that these early Jewish background Christians were enduring the beginnings of a season of persecution. And one of the forms that took is that they were ostracized from trade guilds. Many lost property. They lost income. And so they were facing real economic struggle, maybe even desperation. Secondly, we also know that as the gospel spread beyond the working class folks of Jerusalem into the Gentile world, that some from the upper classes had begun to hear the gospel and had come to faith. So all this may have resulted in a kind of preferential treatment of those who were affluent, a preferential treatment of the wealthy, maybe even a subtle kind of competition among the poorer believers to align themselves with people of greater wealth because it could benefit them. So what does James mean by partiality? To our, word, our ears, that word doesn't sound so bad at all, like... You know, I'm partial to the Chicago Bears, kind of. I'm partial to chocolate donuts, as you all know. doesn't sound that bad, but the word has a much heavier meaning than that. It's not just a harmless personal preference. The Greek word James uses here means personal favoritism. That is, turning your face towards some and not toward others. Specifically, treating people differently according to external appearance and socioeconomic status, rather than their intrinsic value as created in the image of God. He's talking about prejudging people based on what is external. Appearance, clothes, wealth, nice car, education, occupation, skin color. He's talking about prejudice is the word we would use. And when I say it like that, the word partiality begins to sound a bit more serious. So here's a question we ought to ask ourselves. Who are the people that we are kind of predisposed to think highly of? We may not even be consciously aware that we do it, but we're predisposed to think highly of them. And before you answer, think about our our culture. We, as a culture, offer a kind of worship, small w, to celebrity. We worship celebrity. Think, you know, Taylor Swift or back in the day, Michael Jordan. We tend to give glory, praise, honor to talent and attractiveness. That's why so many advertisements feature celebrities or athletes, because advertising companies know it works. Because we 
give them favor, whether we are aware of it or not. Second question we ought to ask is, who are the people that we are predisposed to think poorly of? Again, maybe not totally aware of it, maybe not consciously, but what do we assume when we see the homeless, or we see a refugee, or we see a guy driving a lousy car, the person who does not look like us? I saw a video recently, actually a couple of years ago, of a kind of social experiment. Uh, it was conducted by sociologists or psychologists in a major city in America. In one scenario, an actor uh, who was about 30 years old, dressed in shabby jeans, uh, kind of a torn and dirty hooded sweatshirt, wool cap, and he walked on a busy, crowded street. And as he walked along this crowded street, he began to cough, cough harder, then the kind of he buckled down and collapsed and, and laid down right on the edge of the sidewalk, clearly in distress, people walking by. And the camera kept rolling, and for five full minutes, no one stops. People noticed, they looked, but they kept walking. Second scenario was the exact, exact same actor dressed in a nice business suit. And he did the exact same thing. Coughed, collapsed his knees, fell over on the sidewalk. And within five seconds, multiple people stopped to help. What was interesting to me is that I wasn't surprised by the video. Because that's just the way the world is, is it not? Some are favored, some are ignored, some are rejected. James is saying this may be the way of the world, but it's not the way of Jesus, and it should not be the way of his followers. Why? Verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. Notice James is confronting some hard truths here, but he wants them to know they are loved. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So what does James mean by, has God not chosen the poor? In the first century, as the church was born, uh, the gospel took root primarily among the working class poor of Jerusalem, mostly. And then it spread from there. And did you know that today in the world, the average Christian is a poor young woman of color? I took this picture in Nepal uh, two summers ago when I visited there. This is a, a brand new church. All these people became believers within a few months of this picture. And most of them are young, poor women from a Hindu background. That's very consistent with what happened in the very first century. We also know that, that Jesus consistently went out of his way to befriend the poor, the beggar, the unclean. John Dixon talked about that last night in Jesus, the friend of sinners, if you were able to be there. If not, by the way, we are putting those uh, on our website and available on YouTube if you want to watch his lectures. James is saying two things here about partiality. First, partiality is contrary to the heart of God because it dishonors those God loves. Jesus began his public ministry by quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke, he says it this way, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that God's love and grace are freely offered to all, anyone, rich or poor, 
who will receive it by faith. God's heart is not against the rich. There's nothing wrong or sinful about having wealth. What we do with it is a different thing. How we feel about it is a different thing. But we also see clearly throughout Scripture that God's heart is inclined toward the poor and the marginalized and the outcast. God emphasizes his love for them because the world does not. Secondly, James is saying partiality dishonors Christ himself. Verse 6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, that's the name of Jesus, by which you were called? Now here James is not saying that all rich people are evil. He's not saying that. There are plenty of examples in the Bible of extremely affluent people who are also very godly people. Nor is he saying that all poor people are saints. There are plenty of poor people who do horrible things. What he is saying is that if we call ourselves by Jesus' name and we follow the Lord of glory, if we are to have God's own heart for the poor and the marginalized and the suffering, we are to make extra effort to see, notice, love, and extend welcome to those that the world does not welcome. In 1 Samuel we read, For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In Colossians 3, Paul says it this way about the church. Here, he says, meaning here, in the body of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What he's saying there is that in Christ, all of these social markers that we tend to use to separate people, to divide people, no longer exist. Not here. They're eliminated in Christ. Remember, James' main concern in writing his letters to emphasize that genuine faith produces changed behavior. Or to turn it around, what we say and do bears witness to our faith. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. So James is saying that partiality, favoritism, prejudice, discrimination of any kind has no place in this body, the body of Christ. It's a problem. It's a problem that needs a solution, and that solution begins by understanding, secondly, the principle of the royal law. The principle of the royal law. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now what's James mean by the royal law? He says it's you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls this the royal law, because Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king, and when the king says this is a law, it becomes a royal law. And when Jesus was asked once, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In Matthew 22, we see Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this simple sentence, this straightforward command, love your neighbor as yourself, what James calls the royal law, might be the most radical and powerful string of words ever uttered or written down. Simple sentence. Think about it. Would not all the social issues of our day in our nation, 
around the world, racism, violence, religious conflict, even what's happening in the Middle East. Wouldn't all of it disappear in a day if people could obey this command? Love your neighbor as yourself. But the problem is people are broken. And therefore the world is broken. And we need help. Secondly, James says we need to recognize that partiality is sin. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Think about this. Not only is partiality a serious thing, a sin, James actually lumps it together with adultery and murder. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, wait, wait, what? what? Really? And remember, Jesus said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. And James was a student of his brother's teaching. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. Everyone agrees with that, right? Murderers should be judged. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's an insult or a slur, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So why is James so insistent that partiality is sin? Well, sin is sin because it destroys. Sin always destroys something that matters to God. Sin destroys our relationship with him. Sin destroys relationship with each other. And ultimately, sin destroys us through spiritual death. So partiality is sin because it dishonors the Lord of glory and it destroys. And the solution to the problem James gets at is the third thing we talk about, and that is the power of mercy. The power of mercy. I don't know about you, but when I drive, uh, there are a couple of things that, that are just pet peeves of mine that, that kind of drive me crazy. I wonder if you can relate. One of them is, um, say I'm stuck in a line of traffic, and there's a merge lane. There's cars as far as you can see, and there's a merge lane, people trying to get in. And I see somebody who needs to get in, and I, I graciously wave them in. And then they don't even look back. They don't say thank you. They don't give me a little wave. I'm like, just give me something. I I just acknowledge my generosity, right? And then sometimes that person that I graciously let in doesn't let the next person in. I'm like, you selfish, worthless human. You don't deserve my mercy, right? The other thing is when you're stuck in the same line of traffic, there's always somebody who comes zipping along the shoulder, right? I'm sure nobody here, but comes zipping along the shoulder, and they just drive right by and try to cut back in way up there. I'm like, no! I want to roll down my window. No! They don't, they don't let them in, right? And when you see someone behaving badly in a car, maybe they're driving too fast, or they're doing that sort of thing, or they're texting or something, what are you thinking? We're thinking judgment, right? Because if you see that car pulled over a few minutes later up the road, you go, uh-huh. 
got what was coming to him, right? And you're kind of happy about it. But what happens if you're driving and you see the lights in your rearview mirror? And you look down and you're going 70 and a 55. What are you thinking then? Mercy, right? <laughs> you're thinking, I, I didn't mean to. I, I, I saw this quote once. Everybody wants justice done to somebody else, right? James says, verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount again, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what does James say is the remedy for this sin of partiality? Mercy. Mercy. And mercy begins with, he says, the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What does he mean by the law of liberty? Well, the law of liberty is the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives li- that give, who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the gospel says that through Christ we are set free from the law of sin and death. The gospel is the mercy of God. Again, Paul in Ephesians 2, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion and forgiveness shown toward those who do not deserve it and can never earn it. Mercy is compassion and forgiveness for those shown toward those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. So what does it mean to be judged by the law of liberty? It means to be judged by the gospel as those who have received mercy, who've been set free and received what they do not deserve and could never earn. So in Christ, we are free from sin and death, free from condemnation, free to see ourselves the way God sees us, and free to see others as God sees them. We've received mercy in order to offer mercy. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What we, followers of Jesus, the church, are to be about is not partiality, judgment, but mercy. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 uh, that James undoubtedly knew, and I think may have been on his mind, just my guess, on his mind as he wrote this letter. You may remember the story. Uh, John Dixon talked about it, in fact, last night. Uh, A man named Simon, who was a Pharisee, very religious man, invites Jesus to have dinner at his home. During the meal, we're told, a woman who has lived a sinful life, but had already met Jesus, comes into the home uninvited and immediately begins to, begins to uh, uh, weep at Jesus' feet and anoint her, his feet with both her tears and with expensive perfume, which was a cultural expression of gratitude and respect and love. We're told that Simon the Pharisee immediately judges both Jesus and the woman, saying to himself, not aloud, but saying to himself, if this man were really a prophet, if he was who he claims to be, he would know what kind of woman this is. In other words, he's not who he says he is, and she doesn't belong in my house. 
Then Jesus, knowing Simon's heart, asks him a question. He says, Simon, if two men owed money to a lender, and he talks about denarii, the, the, the money of the time. One owes 500 denarii, which was one and a half years of income, and the other owns 50 denarii, which is about a month's income. Which one, if their debts were forgiven, would love the lender more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, bingo. It's my translation. And then we read, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, yet she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I think Jesus is really asking this man Simon three questions. He's saying, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her as I see her? As one who has received mercy. He's saying, Simon, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as I see you, as one who needs mercy? And he's saying, Simon, do you see me as the one who can offer mercy? questions. How do we see Jesus? The Lord of glory, the Lord of mercy. How do we see ourselves as those who have received mercy? And how do we see others, those who need to know and receive the mercy of Jesus? James says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for your word, for this ancient letter, written in love, but also with truth that confront, confronts and convicts at times. So forgive us for sometimes failing to see the way you see. Forgive us for failing to offer to others the same great mercy you have given to us so freely. So by your spirit and through your word, shape us to be those who honor you as the Lord of glory, the Lord of all mercy, and how we live and how we see others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our benediction today comes from the New Testament letter called Jude, which many scholars believe is also one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Through the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Have a great day.